If you had asked me even five, five, six, seven years ago what my favorite book to preach out of was, I would have said instantaneously Revelation. No question. We jump right to it. But when Steve mentioned that today, what's your favorite book to preach out of? I'd, I'd have to say this one. <laughs> I mean, the whole thing. There is, there is no other book like the Bible. There's something absolutely uh, stunning and precious and amazing about, about this Word. And we're going to look into that this morning a little bit more. Beginning in verse 8, Job chapter 23, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. And when he turns on the right, I cannot see him. But he knows the way I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Father, oh, that this may be true in all our lives that we might proclaim with Job that we have treasured the words of your mouth more than our necessary food. That we might recognize what you have given us and what you continue to give. And Lord, in all this, that we would be strengthened, men and women, in our spirit. That our flesh, though it grow weak, our spirit would grow strong and would expand in you, Father. And be empowered by your grace, your love, your mercy, the faith that you give. Increase, Father, our spirit in this world so that we can impact this world for you. So that without even recognizing it, we will affect lives around us. We will be beacons, Lord, not in and of ourselves, but shining forth the glory of Christ that people will see and choose Jesus and decide to receive salvation. That we might, Lord, be people who love so much, not because of love that's inherently in us, but because You have formed it in us, Father. You have poured it into us. And so it comes out in acts of mercy and and kindness and compassion. Father, all my ministry life, I've wondered, how do You do this? How do You motivate people? If I can hardly motivate myself to these things. And I always come back to this same place, Father. You say your word, which goes forth from your mouth, does not come back to you empty. And so, Father, I pray, fill up the measure of your word in our lives, in our spirits, in this place, Lord. And may we walk treasuring every word you have spoken. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus popped the lid off of a vaguely understood location in an amazing parable about a rich man and a poor man that he chose to call Lazarus. Luke chapter 16. And that vaguely understood location is Sheol or Hades. Listen to the parable. Luke 16 and verse 19. Now there was a rich man... And he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. (laughs) Jesus was a great storyteller. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. (laughs) I love that. The poor man was carried, the rich man was buried. (laughs) And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, 
and you are in agony. Side note, Wednesday night we talked about this. That for those who don't know Jesus and who are blessed anyway, and you've seen that, people who, who, whose entire life is completely anti-anything of the Lord are blessed anyway, just realize that that's the best it's going to be for them. And for you who struggle and suffer and have sorrows in this world, this is the worst it's ever going to be for you. He goes on, Abraham, and says in verse 26, Besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he, the rich man, said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. We've looked at this passage before. Especially in seeking to understand more of where the dead go, or at least where they went before Jesus died, and then shut down the paradise side of Hades, Paul implies there in Ephesians chapter 4, leading captivity captive up to heaven, those who, who are, who died in, in faith. But there's more here. There's another issue at, at hand here, one of great significance to you and to me as followers of Jesus today. And that's verse 31. Let me read it again. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Moses and the prophets. That phrase Jesus uses often throughout His teaching in the New Testament. And it specifically refers back to the Hebrew Scriptures. Moses and the prophets. The Hebrew Tanakh. That Hebrew Bible that we're in the midst of studying right now in the book of Job. My friends, this is absolutely imperative for any believer, especially in these last days, to know. If we don't listen to His Word, and Jesus referred there specifically to the written Word, the Scriptures, no manner of miracles even raising from the dead will persuade faith. If we don't listen to what was written, if we can't gain faith through the study of and the meditation of and the pouring over the Scriptures, no manner of miracles will do it. Because miracles don't draw people to Jesus in the way that His Word does. Miracles are a flash in the pan, but the Word gets in and begins to work. I was talking with a, a young lady a couple weeks ago, and she was saying, I, I, I want to I bring my husband, I want him to be here, but, but you know, he's not really a believer, but he said he'll come. And I said, alright, if he said he'll come, you've got him. Because all he needs is to be sitting in the Word, and eventually it's going to get him. It's the way the Word functions. It's one of the the miracles of the Bible itself. And yet, the Word of God remains under incredible fire from our culture, especially from the church itself. This is what amazes me. In fact, popular culture is becoming increasingly apathetic toward the Bible. Take it or leave it, whatever. You want to read your Bible, go ahead. It's the church that is increasingly questioning the value of just plain, sound Bible teaching. And it amazes me. Believers are encouraged to undermine Scripture in very subtle ways, almost undetectable ways. Let me give you an example. How many of you have sat in a small group or Bible study where a passage was read aloud and this question was asked, what does this verse mean to you? Who cares? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's nice because obviously we, we all can read the same verse and, and it can have a significant touch in our lives. We can perceive things differently. But honestly, honestly, I don't want to know what the verse means to you. I want to know what it means, period. I hope you don't come to hear what does Pastor Rick think this verse means to him. It doesn't matter what it means to me. It, it matters what it means. <laughs> Revelation 19.9 says these are the true words of God. What I'm getting at here, gang, is the Bible is not a subjective book. We're subjective. 
And we will read it and study it with some amount of subjectivity and sometimes we'll miss things and sometimes we'll get different things. I, I understand that. But gang, this book is either the objectively true Word of God or God Himself is incapable of objectivity. You hear what I'm saying? That this is truth here. And whatever we want to think, however we want to say, interpret or, or use Scripture to our own advantage, there's still the basic truth that is here, which is why when we study the Word, and I'm always encouraging, what is the context? Who's being talked to? What does it say? What are the implications of it? When it was written as well as to us today? What's the broader context? How does Scripture interpret Scripture? Because I absolutely believe, for my faith, that this is an objective book. And for all my subjectivity, I need objective truth. I need absolute. I need something I can sink my teeth in that I know stands. Even if my understanding may from time to time be awry. My friends, if we believe that this is in fact God's Word, then while we may need His Holy Spirit to fully understand it, it is not open to any flawed human interpretation. This is not like a classic book of literature. Perhaps you took an English class in college or in high school and the teacher said, go out there and and I want you to critique this and come back and tell me what you think it means. Well, that's a typical way to, to critique literature. Not what did the author mean when he wrote it, but how does this impact you? What does this say to you? And a lot of times the, the classic writers would write in such a way that they wouldn't even give their opinion of what they were saying. They want to know what you think it means. Well, the Bible is not like that. It's not just about your experience. It's about what it says. Now, it's critical to understand this because the divine power in Scripture to affect real change in our lives is incredible. If we will take it at face value, if we will take God at His Word. It was about this same word that David said in Psalm 119.11, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Psalm 138.2, I will bow down toward your holy temple. Give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word according to, or some translations say above, all your name. Now the Hebrew word for word that David uses in both of those passages comes from the same root word that Job used when he made this powerful and poignant statement in verse 12. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. The word of God. Now some might say, what about the spoken word of God? The work of his spirit. Good question. And I want you to understand before we go any further, I am not denying the importance of hearing and obeying the promptings of the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's how the written Word of God came to us in the first place. If people were not listening to the Holy Spirit spoke from God, we wouldn't have the written Word. That's how it originally came. But I want to highlight again the relevance and significance of the book, the Word that you hold in your hands, how important it is for us. Peter said in 2 Peter 1.19, We have the prophetic Word more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. What do you do when the lights go out? When the power goes out and it's the middle of the night in your homes, I'll tell you what I do. I go for the first light I can find. We have these little lantern lights that are electric with batteries and and when we're having stormy nights, we typically will put one of those in every room in the house. And I'll know where it is. If I wake up and the power's gone, I can reach over, click that button, and I've got the lantern. Now, I don't then turn it off and wander through the house leaving it in my room to bump into things and hit my head and stub my toe. No, I carry it with me. I keep it close by me so that I can see where I'm going. That's the prophetic word. That's the word of God. It's a lamp shining in a dark place. He says we would do well to pay attention to this until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Classic works of literature were acts of human will. The thoughts of man, therefore open to subjectivity and interpretation and whatever you want to make them say, because they're not critical to your life and salvation. This book is. But there's a word problem. There's a word problem, at least with Job's claim to the word. And think about this. Job most likely lived in the days of the patriarchs we've talked about 4,000 years ago. 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He was probably a contemporary of Jacob, somewhere around that time frame. But Moses didn't come along until 3,500 years ago, 500 years or so later. So, so how could Job keep God's commandments if the commandments were yet to be written? If the word wasn't penned for another 500 years, how could he treasure it in his heart? I want to address and answer this question this morning from three directions. First off is a plain and simple answer you may already have in your head. Secondly, a precise and more studied answer. And then finally, a personal and significant answer. First off, plain and simple. The language is clear. Listen again to verses 11 and 12. My foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. His path and his way were made known to Job by his lips and his mouth. In other words, Job heard the word. How did Job know the word of God? He heard it. God spoke to Job? Uh Uh-huh. It's the way that God spoke to all people who would come to Him in faith before the Word was written, before it was penned. God spoke. I mean, think about this. And and there are two things that happened, especially as faith began to grow, especially from the time of Abraham, but even back further than that. There's the spoken Word of God, God speaking directly to people, and there's the oral tradition where people passed along, orally spoke to each other what was spoken, what had happened. Historical realities like the flood. And we, and we talked about, I believe it was Wednesday night, that it, it was Eliphaz who, who references the flood and the wickedness that happened there when he's talking to Job. They knew these things and things were passed along orally. But consider this, what was the word that Abraham followed? Or Isaac? Or Jacob? How did Noah, going back further, how did Noah know the will of God and keep his command to build the ark? Or Enoch? How did Enoch know the flood was coming? How did Seth know to call upon the name of the Lord? The plain and simple answer is God spoke it. God spoke it. In the same way I'm speaking to you this morning, God spoke it. Genesis 4.26 says to Seth, to Adam also, or to him also, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. That passage literally is men began to be called by the name of the Lord. God followers. That's all the way back in Genesis four twenty six that people within the mass of humanity, however many people were alive at the time, began to be called. Oh, you're one of those who follow God. Nowadays we would call them Christians. You're a God follower. That was nearly 2,000 years before Job came along. People were already being called followers of God. Man was not just hanging out wordless until the Scriptures were written. God was speaking. As plainly, I'm convinced as I'm speaking to you now, people could hear the spoken Word of God. There was a spoken Word. There was the the oral tradition that was recited and passed along. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says, God after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. God spoke. The Hebrew Scriptures tell us any time, gang, you see the word word, it's not necessarily referring to the Torah, the written word, which is the law. In fact, typically in the Hebrew Scriptures, if you see the word law in English, the word in the Hebrew is Torah. But the rest of the time when you see the word word, it's just word which might be written and it might be spoken, and it often simply just refers to God speaking to man. The most immediate proof as far as Job hearing the Word of God is in the book of Job itself. Look over in chapter 38. Chapter 38, in verse 1, says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Well, Pastor Rick, what does that mean to you? It doesn't matter what it means to me. What does it say? The Lord answered Job. So are you saying that God spoke to Job? Yeah. I mean, plain and simple. Isn't that kind of obvious? And we see later Job will respond in chapter 40, or 
where is it where he responds here? Job, let's see, did the Lord say to Job? Job answered, chapter 40, verse 3, Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am, in, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? So now God and Job are talking. Alright, it's just Hebrew poetry, right? I don't think so. Yes, it is poetic in form as Job was written. God spoke. God specifically, as time went on, would choose prophets, would choose individuals and say, look, I want you to tell them. And the individual would have to go and tell them. And then when Moses came along, God set a standard for that. He said, listen, if the prophet tells you something and it doesn't come true, he's not a prophet. Here's how you know how to trust these guys. They're going to tell you something. They're going to give you real-time prophecies. Things that you can measure. And if those measurable things are not true, don't listen to them. But God spoke. Plain and simple. But it gets more complex. Secondly, the precise and more studied answer. I want to get, do a little bit of word study this morning and stick with me. I think this is real important for us to understand. There are three primary standout words for word, the word word, in the Hebrew Scriptures. There are three primary words that are standout words for the word word in the Greek. <laughs> Okay? <laughs> Turn in your Bibles over to Psalm 33. Keep your finger there in Job and go to Psalm 33. What's kind of cool in this psalm is that all three typical Hebrew words for the word word are contained in these verses. So you'll be able to see all three just right here in Psalm 33, 6 through 11. Let me just read this to you. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. And by the breath of His mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap and lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe before Him, which, by the way, is how the world should be toward God. Tragically, it is not at this point. Verse 9, For He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Three words. Verse 9 there, he spoke and it was done. That's the first word. This for spoke or said or word in the Hebrew Scriptures. The word is amer. If you're, if you're jotting down notes, just write E-M-E-R. Amer. And it's a word spoken. It's the word that was used in Genesis 1-3. Then God said, then God amer, let there be light. And there was light. Spoken word. Just the word that comes out of the mouth of God. Amer. The second word also is there in verse 9. He commanded and it stood fast. That word is sabah. Sabah, if you're writing that down, T-S-A. The Hebrews, the Jewish people have a, a sound which is fun to try and say. T-S-A-V-A-H. Sabah. And it literally means a word commanded. So we have a word spoken. He spoke and it was done. We have a word commanded. He commanded and it stood fast. Genesis chapter 2. Verse 16 says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. First commandment right there. The first commandment was not written down. It was spoken. Spoken by the Lord to Adam. Adam heard it and he knew what the truth was. And it was the only truth Adam had to worry about, by the way. Just don't eat from this tree. Tough rule. You know? I can almost guarantee, though, had we all been in the garden together, we would have been gathered around that tree, enjoying its fruit. Don't eat from that. The word savah. By the way, it's, it's where the, the word you've heard, bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah, savah. That's where it comes from. Bar mitzvah literally means son of commandment. And the Hebrew bar mitzvah is where a, a young man at 13, a bat, bat mitzvah for a young woman, at the age of 13, then becomes a son or a daughter of commandment. That means from this point on, you are responsible in your life to keep Torah law. Up till then, you're not responsible. Your parents are responsible for you to teach you the right way to go. But 13 on, it's up to you. You are on your own to keep the law, to know the law, to understand the law. So, Amer is the first word. He spoke and it was done. Sabah, he commanded and it stood fast. And then the third word, and we've actually seen this before, is Dabar. D-A-B-A-R. Not Dabam. Dabar, okay? And it just means a word declared. A word declared. Verse 6 uses that word. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. It's a word declared. 
The Hebrew title, by the way, for the book of Deuteronomy is Dabarim. Words declared. Words spoken. Not just commandments in the book of Deuteronomy, but declarations. Spoke from the mouth of God. I mentioned Dabar because it's the word used when God spoke His promise of Isaac to Abraham back in Genesis 15, verse 1. Where it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward, your reward shall be very great. Or, Do not fear, Abraham. Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. And this word was declared, Dabar. You know, a question about Genesis 15, verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Isn't a vision, well, visual? I mean, can you see my words right now other than those in the front row getting spit on? Can you see my words? You know, beyond the old say it, don't spray it. We don't see words, we hear words. And yet, the Word of God came to Abram in a vision. How does a word come in a vision? Hold on to that thought. We'll come back to it. Now, in the New Testament Scriptures... There's also three particular words in the Greek language. Old Testament was primarily Hebrew, some Chaldean. The New Testament, primarily Greek, some Aramaic. Touch of Latin. But primarily Greek. And so the three primary words here for word in the New Testament, and these have been a source of, interestingly, some controversy and some argument on occasion, although they need not be, because they interact and interrelate very well. The first one is graphe. Grafe, just as it sounds, G-R-A-P-H-E, from where we get graph. The word grafe literally means the written word. And it's the word you see anytime you read the word scripture in the New Testament. It's grafe. Turn in your Bibles over to Luke chapter 4. Again, keep that finger or that marker there in Job 23. Luke chapter 4. One of the arguments I've had over the years, and this was actually with some close friends of mine, was the debate about Jesus' use of the Hebrew Scriptures, Jesus' use of the written Word. And these friends were saying, well, Jesus never really, He he just kind of spoke, you know, whatever. He didn't use the Bible all the time when He taught. Really? (laughs) Have you read? (laughs) First of all, yes, He did, constantly. And secondly, Jesus is the Word, so whatever He says is the Word anyway, so we're good to go. Luke chapter 4, verse 16 tells us, He came to Nazareth, where He had been brought up. And as was His custom, He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. By the way, wouldn't you love to just go to Nazareth? You can. (laughs) I can still get you in. Two weeks we leave. Okay, <laughs> I don't think I could get you in now. But we are going to do another trip, and I'm going to start advertising it right now. Two years from this October, maybe sooner if you guys really bug me, we're going back to Israel. So he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, as was his custom, he entered the synagogue. Notice that, as was his custom. This is what Jesus did. I think it's obvious that Jesus loved the Word. He came into the synagogue, stood up to read, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Why? Because on the Jewish calendar year, on this particular day, the book of Isaiah was being read. And so it was just, oh, okay, would you like to read? Here's the reading. Love this. It tells us that he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all those in the synagogue were fixed on him. They're waiting for his commentary. What's he going to say? And Jesus blew them out the church. He said, Today this scripture, Graphe, has been fulfilled in your hearing. Is that your interpretation? (laughs) What are you saying? It's me. It's about me. 
This Scripture, graphe, this Scripture has been fulfilled. The written Word of God, the Bible, by which we can test and know that we're rightly hearing the next word, which is, in the Greek, the spoken Word of God, rima. We spell it R-H-E-M-A, rima. The rima. Now, the rima is getting a lot of airplay in the church today. Because people are very fascinated and excited about being able to hear from the Lord. And hey, well they should be. I absolutely believe every one of us as followers of Jesus Christ should be learning to listen. And to hear from God. To know when the Spirit is is moving us one way or the other. To have answer to the things that we're praying. And I do believe personally that we can hear from the Lord. Rima, the spoken word. In describing the full armor of God, Paul writes in Ephesians 6.17, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the word word there is Rima, the spoken Word of God. That verse is often quoted, but take the sword of the Spirit. Well, the sword of the Spirit is not the graphic. It's the Rima. Take what God speaks as your sword. Now there's another place that refers to the written word as the sword as well. They're interchangeable, gang. Grafe, the written word. Rima, the spoken word. And this is what Job claimed to have heard in chapter 23, verse 12, when he said the command of his lips and the words of his mouth. It's the rima in Greek. The spoken word. But the controversy comes from those who would elevate the spoken word of God over the written word of God. Or those who would elevate the written Word of God over the spoken Word of God. Hey, if it's God's Word, it's God's Word. Right? However it comes. Whether He speaks it, or He has written it. Now, some of you may be a little uncomfortable and go, yeah, but (laughs) a lot of people have claimed to hear God's Word and been tragically wrong. And you're absolutely right. And that's where the problem truly lies. I'm sure Job would say, why would you in this life want to go back to hearing only when you've got the grape to soundly test the rima? And that's the point. God has graciously, wonderfully given us the grape, the written word. That as we listen and hear the rima, we can test it. We can know, man, was that of God or not? I don't know, how do we know? Check it against the written word. Test it against what He's already given. If it is in line with the Gospel of Jesus Christ, great. If it's another Gospel, eh, you're out. It is not from God. Galatians 1.8 Paul said, I'm surprised at you that you're so quickly accepting another Gospel, my paraphrase. You're just going after that. There is no other Gospel. But the one that's already been given. And he said, if anyone, being an angel from heaven, a man or an angel from heaven, tries to give you or preach to you a gospel other than what we've already preached, let him be accursed. There is no new word. The word is new and fresh every day. But there's nothing that comes along and supersedes it, which is interesting. In every other religion, there's a superseding. And you realize that in the Koran. The latter part of the Koran supersedes the former. So in the beginning of the Quran, where Muhammad seems to be favorable toward Jews and Christians, is superseded by the latter part where he says cut their heads off. Because that has a heavier weight. It came later. The Muslim would say the Quran supersedes the Scripture. You know, because the Scripture is a little older and the Quran came around to help us really understand what God meant because he didn't get it right the first time. <laughs> Mormonism does the same thing with the Book of Mormon. It's a further testament of Jesus Christ. And by the way, those of you with Mormon friends, Galatians 1, 8 through 10 blows Mormonism right out of the water. I mean, case closed, end of discussion. Why is there even a Mormon faith when he says, even if an angel from heaven brings you another gospel? And Mormonism is based on the angel Maroni. That was a little cheesy. I shouldn't have said that. (laughs) Based on the angel Moroni coming and giving Joseph Smith a message, well, okay, benefit of the doubt. Let's say there is an angel Moroni, and he did bring a message to Joseph Smith. He is to be accursed according to this word that says there is no further word. 
God speaks to you today, Rima, and it doesn't align with Grafe, it is not God speaking to you today. It's coming from something else. Maybe your own head. Maybe another spirit. Just this week, I ran across the very reason why we so desperately need the Grafe, the Scriptures, and the Rima to be a hand-in-hand deal. Some of you got my email. And I don't mean any offense to those who are Seventh-day Adventists, except just to say, eyes need to be opened and understood. Wow, that makes it sound serious. <laughs> Listen to what I'm about to say. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> In Seventh-day Adventism, Here's the problem. And, and in Christianity today, people have gone back and forth. Experts have gone back and forth. Is Seventh-day Adventism okay? Is it just quirky or is it a cult? Listen, gang. Ellen G. White, one of the founders of Seventh-day Adventism, a, a self-proclaimed Christian, said that she had claimed the spirit of prophecy. Revelation 19.10 says the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. That she claimed to have the spirit of prophecy, the spoken word of God, and she had visions. And she gave all these visions. And today, tens of thousands of people subscribe or ascribe to the Seventh day Adventist theology, and they, and they accept her interpretation of Scripture, even though dozens of her prophecies not only failed to come true, but run counter to what Scripture says, not the least of which is she taught against propitiation. Propitiation, that's. Big word, what does that mean? Ellen G. White taught, and you can research this and look it up. She taught that the work of Christ on the cross was sufficient to save only those who lived the good life. Only those whose righteousness, whose righteous works were, were allowed that propitiation. That Jesus entered in, and I sent this out in the email this week, that Jesus entered in on October 22nd, 1844, entered into the Holy of Holies in heaven, to make judgment. To look down and go, okay, well, let's look at James' life here. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Amen! I say, let's look at Jim's life. If you didn't hear it, he said, let's don't. And I'm like, I'm right with him, man. Let's not look at Pastor Rick's life. Let's look at the blood of Jesus which saves me. Because none of us deserve the blood But if we put our faith in Jesus, we receive the propitiation, which is foundational to our understanding of God's grace. And yet Ellen G. White said, no, it's works. When you see a religion preaching works over grace, be careful, you're on the verge of a cult. That's what the cults teach. It's all about your works. It's all about what you do. Why weren't people holding up the written word to test the spoken word of Ellen G. White? I don't know. But that's why we have both. That's why we have His Word. So that we will know and not be led away. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.2, We have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. What does that mean, the manifestation of truth? Paul says, test us. Look at what we do. Look at what God is doing through us. Test it against this Word. And you will know the truth is manifest. The truth is seen. We are not walking or running contrary to what the Word of God has to say. We don't bend the Word to fit our personal bent. There are things in the Word of God that I don't like. But it's not my Word and it's not my choice. I'll give you one of them. Should I? when we look at elders in the scriptures Paul says in two places absolutely clearly that they must have children I don't like that because there are a handful of men in this fellowship right now I would make an elder in an instant and I continue to have this conversation with God in my head over and over yeah but he would be great what does it say yeah but he would be wonderful what does it say yeah but he's wise what does it say And here I am. I don't always like exactly what it says. But it's not mine to like it or dislike it. It's the Word of God. Accept it or reject it. Take it as it is. Rick, you're sounding legalistic. I'm not trying to be legalistic. I'm just saying, what does the Word say? 
and let's live by it. Legalism says if I keep all these things, well then, then I can be saved. No. no. I am saved, therefore I want to keep all these things. I hope that difference is clear. Now all this word study, uh, there's a singularly vital question to ask, and that is how does God speak to us today? How does He go about it? Hebrews 1 verse 1 again said, God, after He spoke long ago to the, pro- to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son. How does God speak today? He has spoken to us in His Son. Romans 10.17, Paul says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. Now understand something here. The word there is Rima. Which shook my theology a few years back. <laughs> Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the preached word, no, hearing by the word of Christ. Now it's interesting, you go back and look at that closely. And what Paul is saying is faith comes by the spoken word of Christ. What does that mean? That is, listen, that means pay attention. What he's saying is, get this, faith comes when the word Christ is spoken. Faith comes by the Word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word Christ. Where the Word, when the Word, as the Word Christ is spoken, when the focus is put on Jesus, whether it's Grafe or Rima, when the focus is put on Jesus, faith comes. And by the way, you're never going to hear a spoken word from God that denies the divinity of Jesus Christ. Ever. The Holy Spirit will never prompt you to say Jesus is anything less than God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word, Christ. Which brings us to the third word in the New Testament, which I believe is by far the most significant, the Logos. Logos. Grape, Rima, Logos. Logos is the living Word. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, Logos. It wasn't like Sesame Street, but there were some letters bouncing around heaven. Okay? L. O. G. Logos. And that wasn't it. The Word was with God. And John writes, and this should just blow the world away. And the Word was God. The Logos. That word in the Greek is very significant. It has to do with the mind and the reason and the essence of, the character The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Well, who's the Word? (laughs) You go on to verse 14 of John chapter 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. If you wonder about Jesus' full nature, is Jesus God? Go to John 1 verse 2 or verse 1 and read, The Word was God and the Word became flesh. The Logos. See, Jesus is the focus of the whole thing. Again, where Ellen G. White got it wrong, Revelation 19.10, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. The focus is Jesus. Do, do, do you get that enough here at the bridge? Do we focus on Jesus enough? Because we can, we can do more. <laughs> I, I'm hoping on, an, on a... Sun, honestly, I hope every Sunday as we come down toward the end of the teaching, you go, He's going Jesus. He's going Jesus on us. I know He's going to go Jesus. <laughs> and I hope as we're going, Jesus are going, We're going Jesus. <laughs> because He is the essence of the whole thing. If we're focused on Him, fixed on Him, eyes on Him, looking for Him, that's why we're here. It is all about Him. Now you might say, okay, so there are six or probably more just different words in the Bible for word. That's nice. Makes for a good study. Thanks a lot, Pastor. I can see scholars getting all wrapped up in this stuff. But what's in it for me? Which is kind of a question I hate to answer, but I'm going to. And it's the personal, number three, the personal and significant answer. Go back to Job now. Job 23.11. Job writes, My foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I love that. It's not, I have kept my version of his way. I've kept his way. 
and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of His lips. I have treasured the words of His mouth more than my necessary food. Necessary food means my daily allotments. My breakfast, lunch, and dinner. My standard fare for the day. I have treasured His word more than that. And Job was right. The word, written, spoken, living, the word is more important than our necessary food. It's bigger than that. If you have a choice to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner one day or read the Word, Job would say, I choose the Word. I would rather be in the Word than go to Denny's. I would rather be in the Word than lunch at the Island Grill. John chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus speaking, He's teaching. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. How cool is that? Verse 25, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's spoken word. The dead will hear Jesus speak. What are they going to hear? Come up here! And they will rise when they hear His Word. And they will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do. And by the way, verse 29, someone will go, oh, so you've got to do good to be saved or if you do evil, you're judged. No, the good flows out of belief. Remember, he already said those who believe. Man, if you believe in Jesus, you are going to be doing that which is good. There's a natural flow of this. The more faith you have, the more your behavior, your actions, your lifestyle will show that. That's what James is talking about. He said, faith without works is dead. You tell me you have faith, that's great. If you really have faith, the good is going to flow. You're not going to be perfect, Jim. But the good's going to flow. If you don't have faith in Jesus, the evil is going to flow. And you can sit in a church, and you can have a big black Bible, and you can sing the songs and do everything, but if your life shows evil, I would have to say, do you believe in Jesus? Really? Because you can't. And do what you're doing. And that's what Jesus is talking about there. Skip down to verse 37 quickly here. And the Father who sent me, He has testified of me. You have neither heard His voice at any time nor seen His form. You do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe in Him whom He sent. You search the Scriptures, Jesus says. The graphe. The written words, you search them because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about Me. And you are unwilling to come to Me so that you may have life. And that is probably, by my estimation, the biggest problem in the church today. Is we search the Scriptures because we think that in them we have life, missing the fact that they point to Jesus and He is life. That's the issue. And there has been over the years so much Bible study for Bible study's sake where you don't end up at the foot of Jesus but you come out with two or three nice platitudes that you can apply to living and they'll work because it's God's Word. But they don't bring you where you need to be which is to Jesus if you're not looking for Him. Yet He's all over. He says, these testify of Me. I, I asked earlier... I asked earlier, how did the Word come to Abraham in a vision? I'll tell you how. Jesus came to Abraham in Genesis 15. That was Jesus. What are you talking about, Rick? Well, John chapter 8, Jesus said in verse 54, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. And you have not come to know Him, but I know Him. 
And if I say that I do not know Him, I'll be a liar like you. But I do know Him and keep His word. Watch this, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. When did Abraham see Jesus? Well, the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? They missed it. He said, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Did he just use bad English? No. What's he saying? I was there before Abraham. And when the Word came to Abraham in a vision, how do you see the Word? You see the Word when the Word is the Logos who became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus visited Abraham. Well, Rick, I'm going to have to study that out and see if you're right about that. I hope you do. Please. I hope you do. But that's the deal. The Word testifies to Jesus, and more than that, the Word is Jesus. And in the Word Jesus, in the Word of Jesus, that's where we find life. Now, Job, that's what makes, that's what makes Job so great. Not the book, the man. What makes Job a great man, literally elevated in Scripture, among the most righteous He's been through nearly inconceivable, instantaneous trauma. His world fell apart that fast, which is often how trauma comes. His well-being gone, his children dead, his health shot all in an instant. Did you hear that, that Marie Osmond's son jumped from a window and killed himself, 18 years old? And Walter Koenig's son, Walter Koenig, who was um, Chekhov, thank you, in Star Trek. His son was found in a forest in Vancouver having committed suicide this last week. How do you deal with that kind of thing? How do you face such instantaneous and horrific trauma in life? Well, you don't go looking for it. None of us want it. But it hits. And add to that this brutal, ongoing barrage of judgment from his friends who are supposed to be helping him. And here sits Job in the middle of all this, and he says, I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the word of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job, how do you have that kind of faith? How do you keep trusting in God? Let me ask you, how would you bear up under such incredible turmoil? Put yourself in the ashes that Job is sitting in. How would you do? Where would your faith go? Why is it that Job continued to have faith in that moment? James 5.11, you've heard of the endurance of Job, James says. Ezekiel 14 lists Job, again, among the most righteous in Scripture. Job, Noah, and Daniel. Ezekiel the prophet says, those are the three big names. Huge righteousness there. But when all of this stuff came falling down around Job, what was it that he did? Job 1.20, he arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshipped. What? When you have a bad day at work, is that your first inclination? When you wreck the car, is that the first thing you think of doing? When you've had a big argument with your spouse, do you go, I'm going to go to church. I mean, is that your instant reaction to trauma and turmoil and heartache and sorrow in life? Oh, I've got to worship. It was Job's. Why? Through all this, Job 1.21, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. How did this man from so long ago develop such a faith? Listen, the endurance of Job and righteousness of Job is rooted in the command of God's lips and the words of God's mouth. Job handled the trauma because he heard the word. You want to know how to handle trauma in your life? Listen up. You need the word. The application of this is absolutely huge for us. Amos 8.11 Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread and for water but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. A word famine. I would suggest to you that we are in it today. A word famine. Are you hungry? Do you find yourself increasingly dissatisfied with the measly fare of popular culture, the Oprah-ish offerings in the self-help sections of the bookstores? I mean, how many of those books are you going to read? Are you starving? Listen, if it hasn't at some point already 
I got news for you. Life is going to tank. It will. It's going to get hard. You're going to get frustrated, confused, depressed, despairing. You're going to lose jobs. You're going to lose people. You're going to find yourself in difficult places. And the only way to be nourished for the kind of stubborn, tenacious, resolute faith of a man like Job is to hear the Word of Christ. To be in the Word of Christ. Any and every way that you can get it. Job says, Behold, I go forward, he's not there. Backward, I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. When he turns on the right, I can't see him. I have no idea. I just don't have that ability to immediately tap in. But, Job says, he knows the way I take. Tell you what I do know about God. I don't know always what he's doing, but I know he always knows what I'm doing. He is always tied in to where I am. How do you know this, Job? His path. His way. The commands of His lips. I have treasured the words of His mouth more than my necessary food. So when the tragedy hits, Job's ready. He's already well fed. He's already nourished. He's already strengthened. Years ago, I was in elementary school and my mom had a Bible cue. You think my puns are bad? She had a Bible cue. She was going to have a barbecue dinner at our house and invite all the teachers. I was raised with it, what can I say? And she invited all the teachers from Linda Vista Elementary School there in Mission Viejo, California to come over to the house on this Saturday evening. She was going to provide all the food, you know, out on the patio, lovely California afternoon, and, and a Bible cube. We're going to have barbecue and then we'll have a, a brief Bible study and you're all invited and they all so graciously received the invitation. Thank you so much. And early that afternoon, the phone started ringing and ringing and ringing and ringing and out of 20 people invited, one showed. I know. Poor mom. She was so excited. And and really, she was excited about the phrase Bible cue, I think, more than anything else. (laughs) Isn't that great, Rick? She asked me like 12 times that day, isn't Bible cue like great? I love that. I'm like, no, it's kind of stupid, but that's okay. (laughs) Hope it all works out for you. You know, one person. Now, I tell you that story because that is such an example of exactly what Jesus said. You search the Scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life. It's these that testify about me. And you're unwilling to come. You are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. And it is absolutely astounding. It makes no spiritual sense whatsoever. When life gets hard, the tendency of humanity is to back away from the Word of God. To skip worship. To say, it's just been too hard a day, can't make it tonight. Man, it's been rough. We need to get away this Sunday morning. And Jesus says, you're unwilling to come. You wonder why you're struggling in life? You're unwilling to come. That you might have life. Job, he said, I can go without food. I'll come to the Bible cube. Forget about the food. Just give me the word, man. And I, I, I will, let me challenge you. If you will commit, pick a book, any book, out of here. And commit yourself on a daily basis, a chapter a day. Just be in the word. And you will find yourself prepared for the challenges of life far more than you ever could have imagined. Well, I wish I could pray like Pastor Les. You know why Les prays that way? Because the Word is in his head and in his heart. And I'm not meaning to embarrass you, Les, but but we sit and we have prayer times together and just pour it out. It's not because Les is better than anyone here. And he would tell you, and Donna would tell you, he's not. (laughs) But the Word's in there. And the Word has him prepared How about you? Is it feast or famine? The occasional thought of Christ, the random reading of His Word, or do you accept Paul's admonition? Colossians 3.16 Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Treasuring it more than your necessary food. Jesus, You are the Word. We praise You. Oh, Son of God. 
great and glorious Jesus, we worship You and honor You and lift You up. Father, that that You would come and put on flesh. And as John said, we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, Lord, I want to be full of grace and truth. Boy, that's what I want. I just want to be so full of grace and truth. That perfect combination of the two. That as I speak, I'm speaking words of truth. And then I'm, as I'm doing so, I'm doing it gracefully. And so, Jesus, fill us up with Your Spirit. That even as we read Your Word written, hear Your Word spoken, and walk with Your Word who is You, Lord, that we'd be so filled up with Jesus Christ that we would be people of grace and truth. God, I pray for this body. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within us. In Jesus' name, Amen.